Hi, Abraham. How are you? Thank you for coming. Um, we will stop. Uh, we will start on top of the hour. So, um, so yeah, we'll still have a few minutes. And you muted, by the way, in case you're saying something. Oh, Joyce, I'll invite you, David. I'll invite. Hi, Joyce. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you all? Good, good, thank you. Hi, David. We'll start hey. in around. Hey, nice seeing you here. Uh, we'll start in around six minutes. So, yeah, we'll have a few times. If you think this room is interesting, feel free to share the room. In the meantime, with people, um, this will be. It's a really interesting new neuroscience tool that will be quite um, helpful and groundbreaking, I think. So, yeah, we'll start soon. In the meantime, check out um, uh, Dr. Abraham's uh, lab website that I pinned on top of the room. Uh, it's really interesting. And in the chat, I will share the paper. Uh, it's open source, so you can look at it. Um, I'll do that right now. Hey, welcome everyone. We will start on top of the hour. In the meantime, feel free to check out uh, Dr. Abrams' uh, website, um, lab website, and the paper that we are discussing is um, posted in the chat. And I'll switch when we start to the PowerPoint presentation. Um, but in the meantime, feel free to check it out and invite people that you think that might like this room um, here. Thank you.
Okay, we are almost about to start uh, in one minute. So, um, Ibrahim, do you want to test out how your sound, how you sound? Can you hear us? Um, you're muted, just in case you. In case you. Okay. Um, maybe you have to come um, back in, like leave and restart the app and come back in if the sound doesn't work for you, if you can speak. And um, Okay, I think we have some technical. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Um, we will be fixing this in a minute. I, if anyone else has advice, usually it's either that universities block uh, social media apps or the first time people use the app sometimes has technical issues. So restarting the app usually should fix it. But if anyone else has ha have had similar issues and has advice, feel free to add it to the chat. And we will start as soon as we figure this out. Um, yeah, I don't know, Joyce, what we can do <laughs> right now. Um, Do you think moving Abram to the audience and then bringing him back up helps? Couldn't hurt. I don't have any idea though. Or even him leaving the room and coming back. I don't, I don't know.
Okay, I'll switch to the presentation in the meantime, so we can try out if um, the presentation is shared with everyone um, to view. If that doesn't work, I, I have um, a solution for that. So uh, Joyce, can you, can you click on the presentation and check if it's working? Thank you. Okay, I will check. It looks looks like it. Yeah, looks fine. Do you think it would help to make him a moderator? Um, I don't know. <laughs> He's not restarting the the app. Oh, okay. So, okay. Let's hope it just works. Hi, Jake. I see you raised your hand. Thank you for coming. Okay. Let's see if Abraham's can. Can you hear us, Abraham? Hi, Abraham, if you can hear me, well, I guess he can't hear me, but I guess if you can message him and just tell him to leave the room and then come back in. Yeah, he did that. I think, I, it I think it, the problem is he is on the university Wi-Fi and it's blocking. We had that issue before. It's an issue I've seen in the, in the past couple of days in several rooms. Okay, um, yeah, I I hope he is able to switch to cellular data. <laughs> if not, uh, I will try my best to to in the meantime talk about the the research. Um, it's it's really so. I don't know if I take away too much, but um, in general, uh, it's really important to know, um, to get more insight into uh, dopamine um, secretaries in the brain. And um, okay. Okay. It works. He switched to a phone and still no luck. Um, and I hope he, yes, now it works. 
can you hear us? Oh yes, I, I can hear you now. I um, but Perfect. I'm on my iPhone though. I don't know how effective. Uh... Yeah, it's perfect because now we can hear you. <laughs> and um, since uh, this is not the screen. This medium before, and I'm totally new to this, so my apologies. Yeah, don't worry about it. Um, it's fine. Uh, since this is not the screen share. People have to go on the presentation link um, themselves and scroll through it. Uh, there's really no need to use the, you know, um, computer and uh, the university Wi-Fi. We had this issue before, so you're not the first one. So uh, thank you for coming. And um, yeah, let me give the audience a short um, introduction and then we'll go from there. So welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome here to Abraham. Um, uh, we are so glad you made it um, and that you stayed persistent, <laughs> although it, we had some technical issues, so thank you so much. And uh, Dr. Abraham Bien, he's a group leader at the HHMI's Janelia Research Group uh, campus, uh, research campus um, institution. And um, he is interested in developing new nanoscale optical probes to st study neurotransmission. And he and his team focus primarily on probes for chemical signaling molecules, including neurotransmitters, neuromodulators, and neurohormones. And um, the, the group um, uses tools of material chemistry, to create new ways to image and sense the shortwave infrared part of the spectrum. And why? It's because it has remarkable tissue penetration, um, which is really important and useful. So welcome to Science Society. Thank you so much for being here. And we usually start off with a couple of interview questions, if that's okay with you. Uh, sure, but uh, just as a warning I, I really have like not a good connection i'll try my best to stay on and and go through this but uh, uh let, let's go ahead let's i'm hoping to to, to get lucky but <laughs> so far we hear you will really well i know sometimes we have the red bar sign uh but nevertheless usually it 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 works fine so okay let's hope for the best <laughs> Okay, so um, Abram, uh, thank you so much for coming again. And um, do you know, like, uh, we, we usually like to ask this question, our uh, scientists that come here, um, what was the, how did you choose the path of science? Like, was it something you always wanted to do? Was it a teacher, a book, maybe something that happened that kind of sparked your interest in science? Thank you. Oh, thank you for that question. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, growing up, I've always been a, I would say, like a good student. You know, I, I really loved school, basically. I loved reading. Uh, when kids complained about homework, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know why, but I guess that was just the way I was uh, as, a, as a child. Like, I was just really um, uh, attracted to learning and education and so on and so forth. Um, but the idea of like going on and becoming a scientist was still uh, not something that uh, I thought was possible for me because 
it wasn't clear to me what the path was, right? So, and I grew up in a family that uh, was supportive, but I did not have uh, people with advanced degrees around me that told me, you know, to, to become a scientist or to have a career in science, you have to go to graduate school and get a PhD and so on and so forth, right? Uh, which I think when you, when you reflect back on the journey that I had, it seems, uh, seems like uh, a very straightforward journey where people go from undergrad to graduate school, get your PhD, and then go on to, you know, pursue science. Um, but uh, if you don't have the familial and uh, social support around you as you grow up, you don't necessarily see that path. So for me, um, the turning point was going to a school. Uh, I went to my undergrad was at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Uh, so that school had this program, the Meyer of Scholars program. I don't know if you guys have heard of this before. Uh, and the scholars program supports people like me that do really well in undergrad, but, uh, but not only do they do that, they also encourage uh, those students to go on and pursue uh, advanced degrees. And uh, that was like in that undergraduate phase is when I began to see the path. So, oh, so you have to prepare for graduate school. You have to do undergraduate research. Uh, it's not just about the grades, but you have to have some kind of, you know, undergraduate research experience uh, under your belt. You know, all of these things they tell you. Uh, and then uh, I, I was really very, basically very lucky uh, to have been part of that program that ended up <clears throat> uh, giving me uh, this opportunity to to pursue this career, I would say. Yeah, I uh, I really appreciate hearing that that the, you went to a school that really supported um, you in that path. But I would frame it differently. We are very lucky that you took that opportunity <laughs> because <laughs> what you're developing is really important for neuroscience. So I think. We are the lucky ones, not the other way around. And um, how did you uh, then choose uh, this path of creating these amazing tools? Um, yeah, so even that is a bit of a fortuitous coincidence. So I went to, I did my graduate school at UC Berkeley um, in the chemical engineering department. Um, I was uh, really attracted to the physical sciences more than biology. Uh, um, but I found a PI, she was uh, still a postdoc back then, she, she had just gotten a job as a, an assistant professor at Berkeley, and she was still at MIT, and I reached out to her and said, you know, you, you're, you're not here, you're, you're still going to be like another semester or so before you come here, but I really want to be your student because uh, I'm interested in <clears throat> nanotechnology. So that was my interest primarily, was to really... Uh, look at the materials chemistry aspect of nanoscale materials and study them from like a physical sciences perspective. Um, so anyway, so yeah, I became her student and we began to characterize these really interesting nanoparticles that I'm going to be talking about today. And then uh, I found out uh, that uh, these materials um, have uh, a really unique uh, photophysical sensitivity to a class of neurochemicals in the brain that we call catecholamines. Uh, so that ended up uh, taking, I would say, the second half of my PhD thesis uh, into the neuroscience role, uh, area, into the neuroscience research area. So that's how I ended up going from 
basically working on nanomaterials to then straddling the boundary and going into uh, neuroscience and neurobiology and exploring the utility of these nanoparticles and these nanoscale materials for uh, studying um, um, uh, things that are relevant in neuroscience, particularly on this uh, molecular and cellular neuroscience side of uh, side of um, um, the neuroscience research. So, and again, um, I don't think I had like a grand vision or plan ahead of time to, to work on um, at the, in this area of research. I would say that I, I just sort of uh, followed um, what well, was immediate. So basically the way I went about it is I, I'm going to do as well as I can on the projects that are immediately in front of me and then uh, just uh, let that take me, let that guide me and see where that takes me. And that is how I ended up uh, uh, <laughs> where I am right now. <laughs> so I wish I can give you like a very big and grand vision of how I uh, I got to where I am, but really more of um, a series of decisions and uh, that took me to where I am now. Well, I'm, I'm glad uh, that everything worked out um, and I don't think all grand visions always work. I, I think it's really interesting and um, always um, delightful to hear that people just follow curiosity and try to do their best and uh, something beautiful like this comes out of it. That's, uh, that's an amazing story. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, the, the presentation is pinned on top of the room. The stage is yours, so uh, we are all curious to hear about more about your research. So thank you, and um, yeah, please, the stage is yours. Okay, well, so how, um, I'm assuming that everyone has a link and they would be able to follow me. Is that how it works? So if I were to begin to go through these slides, people would be able to follow what I'm what I'm looking at and what I'm talking about. Yes, mm -hmm. is that right, exactly. Katarina? Yeah, everyone can click on it, and it's really helpful when. You say when you switch slides that you mentioned that, that that's all, but yeah, thank you. Okay, sure. Um, so first slide then, let's just go, get right into it. Uh, and the first slide, if, you, if you're not in animation mode and you're just looking at the whole thing, you will see uh, some cartoons. And I want you to look at the cartoon on the top right hand side uh, that shows these uh, nanoparticles that we use in the lab, that's going to be sort of the, the, the start of the show for today. It's called a single wall uh, carbon nanotube. It's a really interesting nanoscale material. And the best way I can describe uh, nanotubes is to actually really go back to the parent graphene sheet. Uh, graphene itself is a really fascinating nanomaterial in its own. Um, it is a two-dimensional nanomaterial that is made entirely out of carbon. And graphene is, is, is made out of this single carbon atom thick sheet, right? And each one of these uh, dots or vertices that you see uh, represents a carbon atom that is bonded to uh, three other carbon atoms through these so-called sp2 hybridized carbon-carbon bonds. So for that reason, it has this hexagonal planar structure that sort of extends into dimensions. Now, if you think about rolling that graphene sheet into a really tiny and hollow cylinder, you get what are known as single wall carbon nanotubes or just nanotubes for short. So one nanomaterial, when you roll it and change the geometry of it, ends up giving you another nanomaterial. And what, what is really striking is because of this extreme curvature in the radial dimension for the nanotube, which is on the scale of a nanometer, 
um, the properties of nanotubes themselves are really different and distinct from the parent graphene sheet. And there are two properties that I want to highlight today that's going to be relevant for my talk. And the first one is the fact that these nanomaterials are uh, fluorescent, and they fluoresce in this range of the spectrum that we call NIR or SWIR. So here we're looking at the, on the chart or the graphic on the bottom uh, left corner. Uh, so what you see there, uh, if, you, if I draw your attention to the x-axis there, so you see that emission happens in this A50 to 1350 nanometer range. Uh, and that what you see there is a fluorescence emission spectrum. So you can see that it is a fairly complex looking spectrum uh, with multiple peaks all confined within that window. And those peaks arise from slight differences in diameter that could end up having slight differences in emission. In any case, what I want you to take away from this is the fact that these nanomaterials, uh, unlike graphene, have their intrinsic fluorescence to them. And then the second uh, takeaway from this slide is that their fluorescence is very photostable. So uh, if you look at the red trace uh, on the um, right bottom um, uh, chart, uh, that is a fluorescence emission from a nanotube dispersion uh, that more or less puts out the same fluorescence output after hours long exposure to the excitation light source. And that, was, uh, that is in contrast Um, sorry, we, we can't hear you lot of right now. Organic, uh, uh, fluorophores and fluorescent and proteins that are... Oh, you, you broke up for like, um, 20 seconds or so. That, that's all. Sorry. Okay. Uh, anyway, it's okay. So I'll summarize this slide. So the summary from this slide is that, uh, these are fluorescent. They fluoresce in this, uh, near infrared region of the spectrum. And they're also extremely photostable, meaning that they don't bleach. I'm sorry, you, you broke there up again. There is a strategy that enables us to um, uh, make sensors out of these nanomaterials, okay? And the way you can make a sensor out of I'm sorry, you're breaking up a lot. Did you maybe move to a different place? That uh, are in close in close proximity to that hybrid material. Okay. Um, uh, that. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're breaking up a lot. make shift uh, that could help you. Uh, It's nanomaterial, meaning that you can have a fluorescence. So Abraham, can you hear me? We. Okay, I don't know. Is it just me, or is anyone? Can anyone hear? No, I can't hear him either. I didn't hear most of what he said after he started talking about how we create a sensor out of the uh, nanotube. Uh, mm. Okay. Yeah, I, I, Did I'm you? Sorry, guys. I I don't know what. Um, 
what we can do. Did did you move maybe to a different spot? In the beginning, it was just fine. Just when, like the last couple of minutes or three minutes or so, was then breaking up. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, I'm trying different areas here, but um, not no luck so far. So right now you're fine. Um. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's try this and let's let's yeah. give it a try. And and okay. and uh, if if this becomes an issue, then we can, uh, we can really just um, find some other ways of communicating this. But in any case, um, yeah. Let me know if I'm. Uh, uh, you can't hear me, but I'm gonna keep going right now. So I was just describing on slide three how one makes a sensor out of these nanomaterials. Uh, and and the takeaway from this is that the material can be coupled in a way to create this other hybrid nanomaterial that has a chemical matter that is decorating the surface. And somehow that decoration on the surface could end up recognizing molecules that change the fluorescence properties of the nanomaterial. And uh, that can be used uh, as a way to read out that molecular recognition. Okay. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, right now it's perfect. Thank you. Okay, very good. So slide uh, next slide then slide four. Um, that takes me to the topic of today's discussion, which is this nanomaterial-based uh, sensors for a class of neurochemicals that we uh, in the brain that we call catecholamines. Uh, so this uh, slide is highly animated, so you might want to try having this in animation, and just tabs through the whole thing to bring everything up. Um, so I'm gonna begin with the, the top graphic there. So what you see there is a pristine nanotube that has not been conjugated to anything. Uh, it's just, it's just, it's just uh, a pristine nanomaterial. And imagine that pristine nanomaterial has some kind of intrinsic fluorescence uh, that we can call F-naught. Uh, and then uh, these nanomaterials, like I said, are extremely hydrophobic because they're made entirely out of carbon. And for that reason, to actually be able to access their photophysical properties and to use them in any meaningful way, you have to decorate the surface. You have to really functionalize it, elaborate the surface with different types of chemical matter. You can do this covalently or non-covalently. And it turns out that one of the chemicals that you can assemble uh, on the surface of these nanomaterials is actually single-strand DNA, right? Uh, single-strand DNA creates uh, a really stable colloidal dispersions out of these nanomaterials because it has an amphiphilic property, uh, meaning that it has a negative charge in the form of a phosphate backbone, and also has these hydrophobic nucleobases that can pie stack onto uh, the hydrophobic surface of the nanomaterial, and thereby stabilizing it and keep it, keeping it suspended in solution. Uh, but what is interesting is uh, DNA, when it decorates the surface, ends up quenching the intrinsic On my end, it's not muted. Everything seems okay. What's weird is your mic appears, the icon uh, appears to be muted, but we can hear you. But you just dropped out for the past uh, like 10 seconds or so. Okay, very good. Okay. All right, so. so if, if, can I ask you a question uh, if I understand this correctly? Uh, this um, uh, DNA. The, so, yeah, so the nanotube 
the fluorescent properties of the nanotube changes based on the the uh, environmental uh, uh, chemistry or something, right? That's correct. Yes. Yes. That that's precisely. So that's that's uh, yeah. That's that's a one sentence uh, summary of what I'm talking about on this slide, which is that. If you take the DNA on the surface, uh, it ends up quenching the intrinsic fluorescence of the nanotube, and then that quenched uh, fluorescence can be rescued by the addition of these uh, neurochemicals that we call catecholamines. In this particular case, I'm showing uh, a dopamine here. So dopamine can come in and, and uh, turn up or, or reverse this quenching that is caused by the DNA on the surface. So the is that the local chemical environment really has a very profound effect on the photophysical outputs of these nanomaterials, and that is what we're trying to leverage for sensing purposes. So could, could can everyone hear me? Yeah, I can. I can hear you right now. Um, thank you. Very good. Okay. Um, so the graphic on the right hand side of this slide uh, shows this uh, fluorescence perturbation caused by dopamine. So this is a sensor in action. So the black trace there is the nanosensor without dopamine. And then when we add dopamine, you can see uh, that it, uh, the fluorescence goes up, it increases as a consequence of the addition of dopamine, okay? And what we also know is that uh, this uh, turn on event is a reversible process, meaning that if you were to take the dopamine away, this thing is gonna get uh, uh, quenched is going to go back down to baseline. And then when you titrate the concentration of dopamine and compute a dissociation constant for this system, you find a value that is on the order of about 200, 250 uh, nanomolars. So uh, at a very high level, this is what the sensor looks like. So uh, I'm, hope, uh, I'm hoping that you hear me, but uh, if, if I try to summarize everything that I've told you so far, it is this. So if we take this inorganic nanoparticle in the form of a nanotube and then uh, conjugate that to DNA, which happens to be one of the uh, central molecules in all of biology, uh, creating this hybrid nanomaterial. Uh, that hybrid nanomaterial has a functionality uh, that is really distinct and unique and different from uh, its unique ability to uh, respond vigorously to the addition of dopamine. So the presence of dopamine in the local chemical environment of this nanomaterial uh, ends up uh, creating a very strong perturbation of the photophysical output of that, uh, of that nanomaterial and that uh, we can use that for imaging dopamine, right? We can take advantage of this uh, thing that we observe in a, in a test tube and then deploy it in real biological specimens to study biology. So that is, that is a takeaway from what I've told you so far. Uh, is everyone uh, able to hear me? Yes. Mm -hmm. Right now we're we're good. Thank you. Very good. Okay. So let's go to the next slide then. So this is uh, the again. This slide is highly animated, so you can tap through the whole thing uh, uh, and just bring everything up. So Could that you I can explain. The slide number. Uh, this is slide number five now. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So this slide number five uh, basically has this title that says nanotubes can be deployed in unconventional but useful ways. So I'm reading this just, just to make sure that we're all on the same slide and looking at the same figures. 
Um, and uh, so what you have on the uh, uh, right, uh, on the left top corner is this uh, composite nanomaterial that we've been able to make out of these nanosensors that has enabled us to visualize synaptically resolved effluxes of this neuro neurochemical that we call dopamine. And, and to, to explain this uh, system, it's actually a very easy one to understand. Uh, the very bottom layer of this composite material is glass. So you just think of a glass cover slip, right? And what we've done is we, we, we can use some very simple chemistry to functionalize the glass so that it has a positive charge on the surface. And then because the DNA itself is negatively charged, we can create a very stable nanofilm that sits on the glass and is uh, is atta attached or attracted to it through electrostatic. In creating this composite nanomaterial, and then you can culture neurons on top of this. And what we've done here is we've cultured primary dopaminergic neurons and the hope is that if we stimulate some of these neurons that are growing on this, on this substrate uh, that is dopamine sensitive, uh, we might be able to capture local releases of dopamine as this released molecule goes and activates some small subset of sensors that are in close proximity to where this release is occurring. So uh, the, 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 the goal here is to be able to image at a really high spatial resolution that enables you to localize specific activities to uh, chemical synapses of dopamine. Uh, so on the left, right, hand side, uh, left bottom, what you see here is a, a scanning electron micrograph of a, a dopamine axon. You see these axonal swellings. So these things that look like beads on a string, those are called uh, boutons or varicosities of dopamine neurons. Uh, and those are the places we expect to see dopamine release. So you can think of those as chemical synapses of dopamine. And the hope is if you, uh, if dopamine gets released from some subset of these boutons, it might be able to activate the medium uh, on which it is growing or on which it is sitting so that you can capture activity. So that was a vision uh, and then the movie that you see in the bottom right-hand corner is uh, after multiple rounds of optimizing the system, we've been able to get it to work really well. Uh, and this is one of the videos that we've been able to produce uh, where I'm showing you a single uh, process of a dopamine neuron. Uh, and you can see this dopamine that are getting released uh, from uh, specific loci across uh, this particular process. And then that released molecule then goes on to modulate the fluorescence of the medium on which this process sits and uh, turns it transiently so you can capture that transient turn on event. Okay, so that is effectively uh, a kind of like a proof, proof of concept demonstration of uh, this, uh, this system. Is, is anyone able to hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you fine. No, no, okay, no connectivity issues. Okay, very good, very good. So, uh, all right, so this is what it looks like. So this, let's uh, go to the next slide. So slide number six um, is um, uh, a, effectively the same thing. So, so David has a question here. 
Uh, is this a form of amplitude modulation? Because there also seems to be a frequency shifting property. Uh, that's that's very good, David. Uh, so this is this is uh, yeah this is an intensity amplitude modulation. That's precisely uh, correct. Um, there are some sensors that are based on uh, what you call frequency shifting or wavelength shifting, uh, but in this particular case, what we see is that uh, the amplitude or the brightness of the sensor just goes up, uh, and it really doesn't change the 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 peak positions of these um, uh, photo emissions. All right, okay. So let's uh, move on. Um, so what you see here in this video is effectively a bigger version of the video that I that I shared earlier, where we're seeing release uh, a synchronous release from uh, uh, hundreds of release sites, sort of simultaneously releasing dopamine onto the substrate on which they're growing. And uh, in so doing, they end up uh, modulating uh, and, and turning on the fluorescence of the, me the media on which they're growing, and we're able to capture that here in this video. Okay? Uh, if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to jump in. I'm happy to, to have this uh, sort of be like a back and forth discussion. If there is anything that is not clear, I'm happy to elaborate more and explain things better. Could I ask? Uh, this okay. Is, yeah. Okay, go ahead, PJ. I'll come yeah, on. just a very quick question, really. I, it, fascinating, not my field of expertise at all, but very interested in this kind of research. Um, could you could you give us a couple of examples? Or, I know it's in R&D or you're doing the research on it, but have you visualized or is there any applications where this is being used? Um, apart apart yes, from the so ones you've described here, for example. Abraham, we cannot hear you if you're there. Uh, I think maybe you muted yourself by accident. Can you hear us? Oh, yeah, now you're unmuted. Okay, so you can hear me, correct? Yeah, now I can hear you. Yep, thank you. All right, very good. Um, Okay, so let's go. Let's go to slide number seven here. Uh, here again, you see a highly animated slide, uh, and I want you to tab through everything and just bring bring everything up so that we can look at it together. Um, here, uh, the the takeaway from this slide it looks very busy, but the takeaway from this slide is that um, if you take a closer look at these videos, so the the motion picture, the video that I showed you earlier, they're all very interesting and and nice to look at, but what kind of information do they contain? Like, is there any any kind of utility there in going about imaging in the manner that we've just uh, uh, done? And I'm trying to answer that here. And what I'm showing you here on the top row is a sequence of frames uh, from the video that I shared uh, in the previous slide, uh, where at the moment of stimulation of this field of view of imaging, uh, so that refers to the stem uh, image, you see these blobs of activity or clusters of pixels uh, uh, that are highly correlated that emerge uh, at the same location across stimuli. So what I mean by that is if you stimulate several times in this field of view and just take a look at the video, at the frame, uh, at that immediate uh, position of stimulation, you see the emergence of these same hotspots of activity uh, occurring 
at the same location, uh, having more or less the same shape. And then about a second later, these hotspots sort of blend into one another because dopamine is diffusing. So you get this uh, semi-homogeneous looking field of view. And then after some period of time has elapsed, that uh, turned on sensor goes back to baseline. Uh, so this is a reversible uh, sensor. And then if you average uh, activity across multiple stimulations, you see that you get uh, that uh, temporal trace uh, that I have on that uh, top uh, right-hand side, okay? Uh, let me pause here. There is a question. For clarity purpose, what type of neurons can be used? Uh, iPSC-derived neurons versus in vivo neurons. Uh, oh, that's a really good question. Um, so these are primary neurons derived from in vivo. From These are uh, collected from rats. Um, we, we culture them, and then we image them. And we have a project actually right now going in the lab uh, to try and do this with iPSC-derived dopaminergic neurons. And for those of uh, for for those that may not know what iPSC is, iPSC stands for induced uh, pluripotent uh, stem cell. Uh, effectively, it's a, 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 it could be like a human-derived uh, cell that is then made pluripotent and then differentiated uh, to become dopaminergic. And then uh, we can Im can we image right? Can we image? Uh, from um, from that uh, from such a system, and we do have a, a work in the lab that uh, seeks to to do precisely that. So that's a question from Ilya. I hope I have uh, I've been able to answer it. Okay, uh, now let's look at the uh, the bottom row together. So um, at the bottom row, what you have is just a bigger version of the the stimulation field of view. And what I've done there is I've brought up another uh, channel uh, that has THGFP on it. Um, so what I mean by that is uh, it's just a structural image of the neuron that is giving rise to this activity. So you can think of um, the, the boutons or varicosities that I talked about earlier. So those are the anticipated sources of dopamine. And then we overlay this uh, hot spots of activity with the GFP image to uh, convince ourselves that these activities that we see here are truly being driven by uh, effluxes of dopamine from specific uh, uh, boutons or specific chemical synapses of uh, dopamine neurons. Okay, those are, that's what you see there at the bottom. So the takeaway here is that uh, what you see here is clusters uh, of correlated pixels that form as blobs or uh, hotspots are truly uh, effluxes of dopamine that are being captured from specific chemical synapses of dopamine. So this is something that has never been done before, but we're doing it here. We're capturing that uh, very early phases of, uh, of escape of dopamine from the release site. And not only can we visualize that, we can also colocalize that activity to specific uh, uh, boutons or specific chemical synapses of dopamine neurons. Now, on the, on the slide number eight, uh, what I have there is a, a, these biosensors in uh, neuroscience that are very uh, extensively used. We have calcium sensors, voltage sensors, and neurotransmitter sensors. And if you tap through this slide and bring everything up, uh, what I want, the point that I was trying to make here is that most of these uh, biosensors, in the way they're deployed, emphasize collecting act activity from um, as large a number of neurons as possible. And it is really uh, rarely targeted at the subcellular level. So the type of imaging modality that we're advocating for in this study 
really uh, drives home the importance of looking at things at a subcellular level, like looking at things uh, not a, at a population of neuronal level, but uh, going sub-neuronal, subcellular, and looking at things at a, at a, at a, at a single uh, chemical synapsis. So there are a couple of uh, questions that have brought uh, that have been brought up. So let me read them and then try to answer them. So this is from David and it says, uh, is there important information in the phase response of pixels uh, which end up flourishing? Do the parts of image that end up the brightest stuff start? Um, oh, that's, that's really interesting, David. Um, I think I think to, to be able to utilize this information, we would need to do uh, the type of Im the type of imaging that we're doing, but at a faster frame rate. Right now, um, I, I did not share this detail, but the speed with which we're imaging is approximately 10 frames per second or 10 hertz. And, um, and, and although we do see some slight differences in, uh, uh, in terms of how quickly these uh, uh, clusters of pixels attain their peak uh, fluorescence, that difference is usually just a frame or two, so it's really not. We don't have that temporal resolution to really make that that uh, that determination. But I imagine that that information could be useful if you're imaging at faster frame rates, something like 25 hertz or 50 hertz imaging. Uh, and then I think at that point you might be able to um, uh, um, you may be in a position to try to extract some useful information from that. Um, is everyone hearing me? I'm not sure if people hear me or I'm just yeah, talking into Okay, very good. Uh, and then Ilya had another question. Are we limited to dopamine neurons? Could other types of neurons be used? Uh, so that's a really good point. Uh, and again, I think that brings up a question of can we make sensors that are um, for glutamate or for serotonin or so, and so on and so forth? Right now, the answer is uh, partially, yes, we can do it for other types of neurons, but not all types of neurons. The reason being that we don't have sensors that target uh, these other types of uh, uh, neurochemicals. Uh, primarily what we have right now are catecholamine sensors, which is good for dopamine and norepinephrine. Uh, and we also have serotonin sensors. So we can do this with serotonergic neurons, which are fascinating. Uh, but uh, right now we can't, I would love to do this on glutamatergic neurons, but, but we can't do that right now. Okay. What about GABA, GABAergic? Not GABAergic, no. No, no, not glutamatergic, not GABAergic. But, but also, I think uh, the way I, the way I, I approach questions in my lab is uh, there is a half of it is dedicated to biology and the other half is dedicated to the physical sciences, like the chemistry aspect of this. And in that, in that half uh, of the projects, we try to answer this precise question, which is can we make sensors that are very, um, similar to this, but for other uh, for other neurochemicals like glutamate, GABA, acetylcholine, and so on and so forth. Um, so Jared has a question, which is, how is this sensor different from something like Neuralink? Um, I, I'm not familiar with Neuralink, but I imagine that uh, these neuropixel probes and Neuralink probes probably rely on detecting electrical activity from neurons. Um, uh, here, what we're trying to do is actually detect chemical uh, signaling uh, from neurons. So uh, neurochemical uh, signaling is very important because once an electrical activity in the form of action potential uh, invades a, say, a chemical synapse, it elicits a chemical release. So uh, chemical communication between neurons is really uh, 
some mix of chemical and electrical. So here we're, we're focusing on the chemical aspect of things, but uh, uh, the, this uh, neural link sounds like something of a, a, an electrode-based technique that measures electrical activity from neurons. Again, a very important uh, piece of technology, but, uh, but a different modality of uh, sensing. All right, let's go to slide number nine, guys, and tap through this uh, all the way through. Um, uh, not all the way through. Start before the last uh, animation. All right, so what? Is it just me, or is his signal going in and out? It's his signal. Oh, out. I think, Abraham, I think you muted yourself by accident. I see the mute button up. Can you hear us? Potentially not. That might also indicate that. Uh, oh, there we uh, go. Okay. Uh, did, I, did I drop off? Yeah, I think you muted yourself by accident. The mute button was on. So okay. You said uh, let's switch to slide. I think nine, and then we'll watch. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm on slide nine. I was just talking about uh, what I was trying to communicate here. So if you, um, if you tap through these animations on slide number nine, um, t um, go through all through, uh, go through all the animations except the last one. Except the last one. So stop before before the last animation. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm still here, right? You can still hear me. Ah uh, yes. Very good. So uh, very quickly, what we what you see here is uh, there are five uh, activities, five blobs or clusters of activity on the NIR uh, DFRF image. And then on the THGFP image, you see the varicosities or the or the chemical synapses of dopamine that are presumably responsible for giving rise to these uh, these uh, clusters of activities. Okay, so uh, what I'm showing you here is that for each one of these clusters of activities, I can assign them to specific varicosities, specific chemical synapses that give rise to those activities, right? And I can do that because I have an overlay image that. I can use as a guide. What is really striking is that when we image uh, is he gone again or is it just me? Yeah, I think uh, I think there's an issue with connectivity on his side. Yeah, um Abraham, uh and now you're muted again. Um sorry. In between it was fine, but Right now you're breaking up and you're muted. The mute tends to be an auto function of the breakup, unfortunately. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, probably you can't hear us right now. Probably not. We'll see if it comes yeah. back again. It was, it happened. Um, now you're back. Okay. How 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 far how far how much did I uh, was I able to communicate this time around? 
Well, you said we should um, stop before the last um, animation. I see. Yep. Okay. All right. So. All right. So I'm still here, right? Yes. Yes. Now you're here. Hey, All right. Is there potentially any way you could um, move closer to a wireless router, or maybe if you're um, on GSM, switch to Wi-Fi or anything of that sort? Well, I I, I was I was on Wi-Fi, but I think Katarina told me I need to be on cellular data to be able to, yeah, to I do this. Yeah, I correct. University Wi-Fi. The I think the the problem is with university, like most universities block social media so abram will look like he's here but he won't be he didn't hear us or could speak so that's why usually just getting off the university wi-fi helps but yeah yeah um or have you have you um, tried maybe maybe it's different where you are i don't know Well, that was the beginning problem, like the first six minutes or so was trying to fix uh, that. And but on a, on a, I tried a different Wi-Fi connection now, so maybe this would this maybe this would work. Yeah, we can hear you right now. So, yeah, it should work. Then. Thank you. All right. So let, let's go ahead. So animate to the last one. Uh, just ex uh, stop before you go to the last one. So. Um, so in this field of view, you see this NRD of a verif image, and then you have the THGFP structural image and the overlay image. Uh, in the NIRD of a verif image, this is activity images, and there are five uh, clusters of pixels um, that are um, sort of like the, the putative uh, uh, releases from specific varicosities, right? And because I have that overlay image, I can um, determine with a great, great degree of confidence precisely which varicosity actually leads to uh, which activity, right? So these white arrows uh, uh, are meant to guide you with, with that effort, where I can say, you know, the, the one of these varicosities gives rise to one activity image and so on and so forth. Uh, what is really striking is when we image in this manner, um, the there is a class, there is a subset of chemical synapses of dopamine or varicosities that actually do not contribute uh, to uh, release. Uh, those are depicted in white arrows here. So the white arrows, you can see if you look at the corresponding and of average image, you actually don't see any kind of activity from them. So why is that? Um, these white, uh, I'm sorry, the, the red arrows, I mean, the, the red arrows show no activity, correspond, no corresponding activity. And as far as we can tell, these appear to be chemical synapses of dopamine, at least morphologically, they satisfy the criteria uh, for a chemical synapse, but they really don't have the corresponding NRD of RF activity. Uh, and I think this is a kind of information that, uh, question that we want to pursue here. So what are some of the molecular level differences uh, between these uh, release capable and release incapable uh, chemical synapses of dopamine? Like what are some of the uh, protein level differences or transcript level differences? And, and even more importantly, what is, what is a regulatory governing principle here that uh, enables a specific sets of varicosities to be release capable, whereas some other subset release uh, remains release incompetent, right? So these are, I think this is a kind of information 
these subcellularly resolved imaging um, uh, would be able, excuse me, would be able to help you uh, go after or would be able to uh, help you investigate. Um, so the last animation basically shows you that even in clusters, um, uh, we're still on slide nine, the last animation, even in clusters that have uh, a set of uh, chemical synapses of dopamine right next to each other, you can see that there are three of them here. Uh, we can uh, conclude with a pretty high degree of confidence which activity actually, which varicosity gives rise to the activity in question. So this is, this is a very important capability that I think this tool um, uh, is able to provide. So slide 10, <clears throat> at a very high level, uh, the takeaway from this uh, slide is another application of this uh, technology where um, if you animate all of the slide 10, what you see here is a dopaminergic neuron, a dopamine neuron in the field of view. And there is a single process that I've highlighted there in a in red box. And there, if you take a closer look uh, using the bottom row uh, images, you see that this process is uh, colloquialized with these three other um, NIR activity, NIR D5 activity images. And uh, this is very uh, unique and very interesting because um, what we're imaging here are dendrites of dopamine neurons. And uh, in general, you know, release from dendrites is not something that is common. Uh, axons are release capable, but not dendrites. And here, uh, the ability to really do things at a subcellular level has contributed to this, um, uh, this unique uh, capability for us to be able to image uh, dendritic release and then go about characterizing it in a way that has not been uh, uh, possible before uh, this uh, technology was introduced. Um, so go to slide 10. <clears throat> <clears throat> we're, we're nearing the end, um, but I just wanted to highlight here, uh, this is, a, again, a pretty busy slide, but uh, what uh, the, the takeaway message from this is that uh, once we're done imaging in this uh, modality, we can fix these neurons, and then we can uh, go look for specific types of proteins in these processes that are giving rise to these activities. So in this uh, particular case, uh, we went and stained for a protein called MAP2, so that stands for microtubule, associated protein to uh, is enriched in dendrites, but it is absent in axons. And the, the whole uh, effort here is to, um, to really prove that uh, these activities that you see here are not axonal in nature, but are dendritic in nature, and really just contribute to, to that base of knowledge we have now about uh, uh, release of dopamine neurons from uh, dendrites uh, of dopamine neurons. Uh, the last slide, uh, slide number 12 also has uh, an interesting dynamics there. Um, if you animate that, you see uh, a segment of a dendrite of a dopamine neuron uh, undergoing uh, this dopamine release uh, that is totally stochastic. So, so far, what I've shown you is where we're stimulating the neuron. We're forcing the neuron to fire action potential using optogenetics, but in this case, we're not doing anything to it. We're just watching it passively. And this guy just uh, goes and uh, begins to engage in this a really vigorous uh, stochastic activity event uh, uh, that is, I, th I think, really striking. And we can uh, take a look at these things. We can um, programmatically determine these clusters of pixels uh, that are correlated, and we can color code them. We can determine uh, the, the spatial as well as temporal uh, uh, behavior of these uh, activities from specific processes or specific, specific segments of, uh, uh, of neurons in a way that, again, is really difficult to do 
uh, with existing uh, tools and technologies. Uh, slide, um, the next slide, I guess this is slide 11 now. Uh, no, slide 13. If you animate that, uh, what you see there uh, are two videos. Uh, one is uh, um, one is an ACSF. So this is uh, this is our normal imaging buffer. So you don't have to worry about what ACSF is, but think of it as our normal imaging buffer, or the buffer through which uh, in which these neurons are grown, and we can image uh, through them. Uh, and then we can also uh, uh, image in that same exact field of view with uh, 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 a, a in a drug called TTX. So TTX stands for tetrodotoxin, and it is a sodium channel blocker. And what it does is it, it blockades this uh, action potential dependent synchronous releases of dopamine, and then leaves behind these stochastic release events uh, that are known uh, as TTX minis, and that really. Um, uh, demonstrates the level of sensitivity that we have from these sensors. This effectively tells us that you can detect the smallest bits of information uh, that these neurons can release. So single mm -hmm. vesicle fusion events uh, can now be detected uh, uh, in a way that is uh, resolved in both the temporal as well as spatial domain. And that is, I think, a really unique capability of this tool. Uh, slide 14, let's, uh, in, in interest of time, let's skip 14. Uh, I think there is really fascinating information there, but um, in interest of time, let's go to slide 15. Uh, uh, and then I'll conclude on slide 15 and I'll stop there. And what I wanted to share with you here uh, is there are some challenges with this technology. Um, now, I told you about this really unique fluorescence emission spectrum at the beginning of my presentation. Uh, that emission spectrum, um, goes from f50 to 1350 so that's one of the one of the figures on this uh, on this slide shows that and it turns out that these uh, unique range of the spectrum is generally incompatible with a lot of the imaging technology that are currently available in a lot of neuroscience labs right uh, the reason that is the case is because uh, most uh, fluorescence or fluorophores right uh, protein based or synthetic small molecule dyes they're all, uh, uh, they all release in this visible range of the spectrum where silicon-based detectors do a really good job uh, of detecting them. So uh, most of the cameras, uh, SICCD or uh, PMT photocathode materials, including bioalkyl, methylalkyl, uh, and GASP, they, they don't do a good job of imaging in that shortwave infrared region of the spectrum or NIR region of the spectrum. So uh, for my lab, you know, the first year and half of it was really dedicated to developing this custom microscopy solution uh, that enables us to image in this very broad range of the spectrum, 400 to 1400 nanometers, meaning that I can image from a green fluorescent protein or GFP as effectively as I can image from these nanotubes that, that uh, emit uh, in this range of the spectrum. So um, I'll leave it there. Uh, I'll, I'll stop there and then acknowledge a few people in my lab. Uh, John Dima, who is a postdoc in my lab, that was uh, the point person for this project. Uh, uh, Deepika from a cell culture facility. Dimitri from uh, our core facility here uh, for his contributions to developing this uh, custom microscopy solution that I talked about earlier. 
uh, and Casper uh, and Anastasia also at Janelia contributed uh, a great deal to this. Um, I hope that I'm I'm still being heard. Um, yep. Okay, very good. So I don't know. So we've gone for about an hour now, and uh, that's probably because there was a lot of pauses and re repetitions. But um, yeah, if if there is an appetite for a few more questions, I'm I'm happy to. To entertain yeah, them. thank you. Um, thank you so much for this really wonderful presentation and uh, this beautiful animations. And would this also be possible to use in slice electrophysiology? Because in the beginning, you mentioned that it has to be mounted on um, um, on specific coated um, material. Uh, Oh no no yeah so that that's a good point, uh, Katarina. So the the this is just one specific presentation in that modality that I that I shared, which is to create this composite nanofilm. But these are nano these nanosensors are in solution, so we can apply them to brain slices. We have done that. In fact, we've, we we can incubate a brain slice like an acute brain slice in this sensor, uh, and then uh, just the passive uh, room temperature incubation for fifteen minutes is enough to really good uh, to give you a very good labeling and then you can go and image dopamine in in the striatum for example we've done that wow that's perfect that's yeah. amazing and especially amazing that you could also detect like this tonic or minis uh, i think that's where you probably you will be able to detect let's say you make a mouse a cocaine dependent or something um and then I think you will probably see a lot of differences in this tonic release, which is really exciting. And also, it's really exciting that you um, moved far away from the spectra that we usually use. I know it's kind of um, probably for some labs, but it depends. If you don't want to, I mean, this is two photon, right? So, but you can just have different filter cubes and an image, you know, separate from your, um, you know, the mm -hmm. indicators that is yeah. or something. No, so. no, I, I agree. So this, uh, yeah, so that far near infrared, short of infrared. So we're so far out that we can multiplex this with like green channel or red channel activity indicators like calcium or whatever. And uh, yeah, and even, uh, even try to do that simultaneously, not even swapping between channels, but uh, try and de do this in a way that you know relays information in both channels simultaneously. So, yeah, uh, really uh, very good point, uh, and definitely something that um, uh, that we're interested in doing. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Like I bought, I bought like in time um, from Andor um, like an imaging system where you could, you didn't have to really switch. You have to buy it with two cameras, and then you can simultaneously uh, detect in a cheaper way than two photon. That also should work with that. That's really great, <laughs> and you can have uh, yeah, you have you can image calcium and dopamine at the same time, which is really so useful. Are mm -hmm. you planning maybe developing a potassium indicator by any chance? <laughs> Uh, potassium, no, it's, it's, that's not something that I've thought about actually. These uh, like uh, metallic ion uh, indicators for sodium or potassium, is there, is there an interest in that? Yeah, 
I, you know that astrocyte research is gaining more traction and it's really important, I think, for a lot of neurodevelopmental and, and degeneration and also for like connectivity and how actually memory processes work, like that astrocytes and so on are considered. And um, they came up a paper out and we had the guest speaker here that basically the astrocyte or glia activity starts with detection basically of potassium released from neurons and um, then like their whole calcium waves and so on start so having potassium a really good potassium indicator would i think solve a lot of answers that um you know would would tell us how like neurons and glia work together and and what the involvement is there Hmm. oh must must fascinating okay um yeah i i have to i have to think about this i i know the literature um does demonstrate some nanotube based metal like uh, just metal like m plus uh detection capability i don't know what the selectivity for these things are for potassium over uh some other uh monovalent metal ion so um it uh, sounds fascinating. I don't know. This maybe, maybe, maybe something that. Um, yeah, and because and then you would be <laughs> out uh, trumping at Biden. He said it's it's really difficult right now and so on. He he's coming here to Science Society in November. I don't know if you want to come to. You guys can maybe chat, but uh, he he didn't manage until now to create one so <laughs> that yeah. would be amazing if you could yeah <laughs> um, who, who was that by the way who, who was a person oh ed boyden he's at MIT. ed boyden okay he developed a lot of like neuroimaging oh no no i know him oh, i know okay. ed boyden yeah okay cool yeah that's, that sounds really fun. yeah i think if anyone can do it i think ed's group might, might be able to pull it off <laughs> i don't <laughs> know maybe they're, i mean they're also focusing on other stuff maybe right now so yeah no but he, he does have the like the brand with the people to be able to to do that kind of stuff yeah yeah Ilya, go ahead yeah i had a question uh in terms of uh, practical use for it uh, so I'm working on a gene therapy with just some Molsky, it's a non-profit effort, uh, and we have IPS lines from the patient, and then we have the isogenic IPS lines from the same patient, but the mutation is CRISPR correct. Disease is neuro neurological, and so the point that I'm trying to get to, could this be used to show the rest of phenotype? Uh, we know that dopamine neurons are affected, we know that serotonin neurons are affected, GABA are affected, right? And yeah. we can understand what the, uh, how it should look like because we can create the uh, isogenic control neurons. And so, you know, yeah. side by side. So what would be the practical use of this? Yeah, I think my, my uh, so I, I would have to, I guess, look at the background on this and sort of familiar familiarize myself with the biology. But my first instinct is that this is actually the kind of, precisely the kind of application this would be very useful for. Like looking at things uh, and ex exploring like molecular mechanisms in, in disease and like this CRISPR screening of uh, 
um, of corrections of mutations or uh, or purposeful uh, deleterious introductions and how that affects um, neurochemical dynamics uh, like synaptic variants probability of release like to extract at a really high granular level of uh, um, uh, imaging I think at, at, at my first instinct is I think it is possible to do it um, in fact, I think this would be the kind of thing this would be very good, very good and useful for. And my understanding is that these are dopaminergic neurons, meaning that uh, we can just use uh, current dopaminergic dopamine sensors effectively to try and do this. Right, except these are IPS derived neurons. So uh... yeah, which is which is yeah, and I think that links to the the previous question, which is can we do this in iPSCs versus primary neurons? So these are all primary that I presented today, but. And right now we have a collaboration in the lab with a group uh, at MIT that uh, their expertise is in iPSCs um, and my expertise is in like making the sensors. And they reached out to us and they wanted to see if these iPSC derived dopaminergic neurons, um, like no one has ever visualized dopamine release like uh, in, in the, from synapses of uh, iPSC derived dopamine neurons. Like they, they want to see that. They want to see if if uh, that type of imaging is actually even possible. So I think the first order of business is to really answer that question, which is, you know, from uh, for an iPSC, uh, if you culture it and keep it healthy and happy and then begin to image, uh, would you be able to see uh, the type of these uh, chemical influxes that we see from uh, primary neurons? And and if, if the answer is yes, uh, that these are like the, cellular machinery is all intact and uh, present in iPSCs and it is functional and, and they are able to release dopamine, then you can uh, begin to ask that secondary and tertiary question around uh, comparing uh, primary mut specific mutations and, and that kind of thing. Would you be interested in uh, potentially collaborating? I don't know if that's an interest of yours. I, I, I have an interest in deploying this tool broadly, yes. Um, I, um, if, uh, I don't know, Ilya, I don't know your, um, your um, I'm trying to look at your profile. I don't know if I'll be able to get information, but why don't you? Well, if you... Why, why, why if don't you... we talk, why don't we talk uh, by email? Okay. Uh, you don't, could you put your email in your uh, description? Okay, how how do I do that? Oh. So, or I can just uh, send okay. you Ilya. Uh, just oh yeah, yeah, yeah and I'll can send you Abraham's email address. How how about that? That would be awesome. Thank you. Okay, very good, very good. Okay. I had a question. Um, you had mentioned that you had developed the sensor. I was curious what the technical limitations and potential workarounds for that are of the 10 hertz um, imaging limit right now. Um, the 10 hertz imaging, the frame rate, is was set uh, based on the, the effectively the, how bright these sensors are and the signal-to-noise ratio that is determined by how fast you image them. So if you imagine um, like a very, very, very bright dye, then you can image it faster, meaning that you can image it like a 10 millisecond exposure, for example, because there's a lot of photon coming 
uh, from that die and there is a lot um, there is a a lot of signal to noise that you can expand by speeding things up so we chose 10 because we felt that it was uh, fast enough without actually degrading the signal to noise ratio of imaging um, now we have in the lab um, developed versions of this that are bright enough to do say 25 frames per second 30 frames per second we've done that and it, it seems to although it's not our primary choice of sensor it does seem to work uh, from uh, uh, from first impressions it seems to be uh, seems to be uh, uh, functional and capable of capturing activity uh, at that faster frame rate so uh, yeah so um, yeah the that is the reason we, we chose the 10 frames per second of imaging understood yeah there's always that that sweet spot between signal to noise ratio yes exactly yep uh yeah does anyone else have one last question um because i think abraham probably has to move on to you know his research and his work um, um, yeah, the, Katarina, uh, I, you know, I, I feel terrible about the technical issues. So I'm actually happy to stay behind. And uh, uh, if, if there is more appetite for more discussions, I'm, 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 I'm available. I don't have anything on the back end. So, and again, uh, this is first time for me using Clubhouse. I've never used it before. And that was primarily the reason I had uh, these issues. So. Oh, yeah, you're fine. Um, it happens like it happens to all of us sometimes that our connection is not perfect or something doesn't work so i mean um but it, it was worth the wait um definitely because yeah it's really fascinating also that you found um that you know with your technology we found that dendrites also release dopamine like that's that was probably really surprising for you. So did you also then fix those um, neurons? And could you, is there something different? Like, um, did you, are you planning on maybe doing some RNA-seq or something that you could maybe detect? Why uh, yeah. Oh, no, that's, you're, you're really poking at something that is very close to, to my heart, which is to look at, uh, this coupling, this um, uh, like synaptically or subcellularly resolved activity, and then mapping that onto uh, molecular uh, uh, level differences. Like, can you imagine uh, taking this? Say, you took a like, look at a dendrite of a dopamine neuron, and you have like specific activities coming from specific regions, and then you can go and ask, like, you know, what are some of uh, the RNA transcripts that are available here, but not over there, you know? or protein level differences, I think would be um, uh, a really cool thing to try and do that. Uh, and then if there are some uh, cell level activity differences that you see, if, if maybe if some neurons are more uh, capable of uh, releasing from their dendrites, whereas some other ones um, remain um, more axonal in their release profile, uh, you know, what are, can we couple that with uh, some kind of patch seek or RNA seek, right? So where you can patch an neuron and then extract and then sequence it uh, and uh, map the, map these uh, differences, imaging differences onto 
um, transcriptomic level differences. I think it is, um, I think it's a really fascinating set of uh, uh, questions that we can pursue. And I, I wish, and it's all about bandwidths really. <laughs> right now I have a lab of two people, uh, uh, me included three, right? So how many of these things can we pursue um, in a reasonably um, robust uh, way? So, um, but yeah, definitely some really fascinating questions that we can go after. Yeah. Yeah, I understand the trouble of, uh, you know, having just so many hands and, and, and grants also to do everything we are curious about. I was thinking there was a lab at NYU that did this um, 3D in situ uh, where you could take the fixed cells and then basically you could reuse and, and tissue, you could reuse it again and again and then go back and check like other um, targets that you didn't think of before. I uh -huh. But I don't have the details in my mind. It, a few years ago but that would maybe be cool to do that afterwards to use their technique i think you can order you can get the kit from them and just fix it and then you you can go again and again and look for different targets i think there's just a specific way you have to fix the tissue so um i'll i'll look that up but that would be really interesting if you could maybe become I don't know how the resolution would be if you could look at the dendrites versus, yeah. you know, I, I have to look that up, but that would okay. be. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. Thanks. Yeah. That sounds very, yeah. The, uh, going back and looking at things in multiple rounds of, uh, um, looking at for specific molecules. I think that really it does facilitate things. It would be, uh, you can do things more, quickly that way yeah the, the the problem is always with dendrites also patching them or sucking them up they're so tiny yeah yeah how about did you try the expansion stuff from Edsboyden to expand the neurons and then uh, more space yeah, yeah like well, the the person that was primarily responsible for um that first paper, that first expansion microscopy paper, he, he is here. He's a, he's a Janelia, and uh, we, we've been talking. I've, I've been talking to him as well. Um, to, you know, like, like you mentioned, expanding, looking at things. Uh, he also, you can also couple this expansion microscopy with multiple multi-round RNA fish where you can image, strip, and image, and strip. Um, yeah, it's, they're all, they're all. Uh, I, I think potential avenues we can we can go down. We we can, we can pursue. Um, which one is going to really materialize is still like a matter of question. I think we're gonna try a few things and see if if uh, which one pans out, which one works out for us. Yeah, well, we wish you a lot of more hands and more funding so you can do all of it. Because I think it's also really important that we just know better how dopamine secretory works and the release works. And uh, so we can maybe one day solve some more questions around dopamine and everything okay. related to it. <laughs> All right.
Cool. Very good. Does anyone else have a last question? Let me check the chat. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, Elizabeth is saying bassoon. Yeah, bassoon, definitely. <laughs> the first primary target. Yeah. Elizabeth, I I invited you up to the stage. So. Oh, there you go. Hey, how are you? Go ahead. Thank you. No, I I is is the concept of bassoon really important? If so, could you please tell us what it is because I looked it up and it's a reed instrument. <laughs> oh no, no. Bassoon is a, it's a type of protein. Uh, that we believe uh, might be playing a role in orchestrating some of these releases. Uh, so we so so that uh, conclusion was really sort of like a, a very first or early demonstration of the utility of the tool, where we're looking at specific proteins uh, that might be enriched or amplified in these regions where we see activity. So, but bassoon. So if you if you look for bassoon protein instead of just bassoon, you'll 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 you will be able to find out the the function of that uh, that particular protein. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, I think um, I could probably go on, but I'm not sure how interesting it is on the audience. But um, so. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for coming and presenting your really amazing research. Um, as I said, I we wish you all the funding and a lot, you know, that you grow your lab to do a lot of more projects. Um, and let me know if you one day figure out the potassium issue. <laughs> okay, I'll keep that in mind, Katarina. Well, thanks for the invite. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and uh, uh, discuss and talk about this yeah thank you and uh, if yeah if you one day you have maybe updates something new you want to share please feel always invited to come back here and yeah I hope your collaboration with Ilya works out um, so yeah and thanks everyone for coming uh, thanks for asking questions and uh, being here um, if you like discussions like this, follow the club. We'll have tomorrow Dr. Ilhaik. He will talk. He will be talking about how he is re-evaluating current bias population genetics. Uh, it was a really interesting paper that came out, and actually, um, this paper was mentioned to me by Manas. Thank you, Manas. Uh, the, so she's moderating tomorrow with me. And then my friend, Dr. Oliveira Maya, will be coming. He will talk about goal-directed and habitual actions, but also about other research he's doing in uh, Lisbon. At the, he's the director of the Shapamimu um, Psychiatry uh, Unit. And um, yeah, and we'll have more rooms. Uh, check out the club and okay. Thank you, Abraham. Okay, well, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye, everyone. I'll close the room. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.